You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. and the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors past and present. My name is Kate Stewart from the team here at Stanton and today it's my great pleasure to introduce Jane Carrow to talk about her new book, The Mother. Jane Carrow is a Walkley Award-winning Australian columnist, author, novelist, broadcaster, advertising writer, documentary maker, feminist and social commentator and possible new senator. Add that. <laughs> she has appeared frequently on Q&A, The Drum and Sunrise, as well as making regular appearances at Writers at Stanton over the years. She has published 12 books and The Mother is her first fiction novel for adults. Please join me in welcoming Jane Caro. Thank you, Kate. Oh, you're taller than me. Everyone's taller than me. And I'm wearing heels, so it's even more irritating. Uh, how many people here have actually read the book? Just to give me an idea of how many people are informed. So, the three people, two of whom work for the library. Okay. Um, well, that's really good because um, that means they really do their work and they've read all the books before they lend them to you. So that's really, really good. Uh, so what I thought I might do in that case, if most people haven't read it, is I'll give you a taste. I'll read the prologue um, because then you've got more idea what I'm talking about. Can I help you? The man behind the counter looks surprisingly ordinary. She didn't quite know what she'd expected. Some sort of gangster vibe, perhaps. What a cliché, she chided herself. There was nothing of Robert De Niro or Harvey Keitel about this inoffensive bloke, nor was he a fat, aggro-looking MAGA type. He was neither Middle Eastern nor Italian nor Eastern European, as far as she could tell. He was just a sales assistant in the kind of shop she had never thought she would enter. She tugged the collar of her puffer jacket higher around her face and smiled apologetically. I'm just looking, thank you. He raised an eyebrow at her in response and she blushed. A gun shop wasn't like the upmarket boutiques she was used to and just looking was probably not an acceptable response here. In a boutique it meant give me time and that was exactly what she needed time to absorb her surroundings, to calm down enough to do what she had to do. The door of the shop opened again and another customer entered, a man who looked much more at ease in these surroundings than she felt. The new customer met her gaze and she looked away quickly, afraid she might be recognised. It was an irrational fear. No one knew her in Wollongong. That's why she'd come here. She stood back from the counter and gestured to the sales assistant that he should serve this new customer first. But the bloke who had entered, older, big-bellied and wearing a cap with a logo of some kind on it, decided to be chivalrous. No, the lady was here first. The man in the cap walked to the back of the shop, examining the rows of lethal weapons displayed in locked glass cabinets. The sales assistant smiled at her. 
his manner as mild and professional as if he was selling her a coffee. Made up your mind yet? She had the urge to turn on her heel and run, but she knew that if she did, she would not come back. It was now or never. She put her hand in her bag and felt for the official papers that allowed her to purchase a firearm legally. She had ticked all the boxes, and there were a considerable number of boxes to tick. Then, summoning all the faux confidence of her rich lady persona, she stood up as straight as she could and said, I'd like a Smith & Wesson 9mm, please. You got the paperwork? Miriam handed over her permit to acquire and her firearms licence. To the man's credit, he checked them both carefully. That all seems to be in order. I'll fetch the gun for you. We always have them in stock. They're popular with sporting shooters, especially women. He turned and went through a door at the back of the shop. Miriam looked at the guns lining the walls behind her. They must be for display purposes only. The cap wearer sensed her looking in his direction and he turned and smiled at her supportively, giving her the thumbs up. Good on you, love. I hope it helps. He thinks I'm traumatised, Miriam realised, as she stared at his denim-clad back. And so I am. Somehow this recognition soothed her. She did not quite understand why, but whereas before she had felt like a complete alien in this strange place... Now she felt a little more like she belonged. The hunters and the prey, she thought to herself, were all one or the other in here, or both. So that's the prologue. One of the first events I did promoting this book was with um, Kate Evans, who does the bookshelf and um, a lot of the book programs on Radio National, and she called it a Chekhovian gun which I felt very, very flattered by, not knowing what on earth it was, but it had the word Chekhov in it, so that was cool. Um, I think it means you introduce a gun into a book and it has to go off at some point. (laughs) But I'm not going to tell you when and how or who or why. You can probably gauge a bit of that as I describe to you what the book is basically about. The mother is really the story of an older woman. She's in her late 50s when the book begins. Her name's Miriam. She's a successful real estate agent. She lives in Greenwich, not far from here. Um, She's got a long-lasting, happy marriage. She's got a good business. She's um, got two daughters, a lovely house, beautiful garden, one grandchild. uh, And she's a little bit smug, perhaps, about her life. She's very privileged. She's very cosseted, I'd say. Her husband's quite protective. Uh, she's a woman who feels very comfortable in her life and her skin. One slight niggle. She finds one of her daughters a little bit more difficult to get on with than the other one. Now, of course, this never happens in real life, of course, but nevertheless, novelists take um, liberties. It's not that she doesn't love Alison as much as she loves Fiona. She does. She feels very protective of her. She's always felt that Alison somehow was a little bit more fragile than Fiona, in need of more. And in a way, she's resented that because it was the... Alison is the younger of the two daughters and by the time she came around, the novelty of motherhood had worn off. And and Miriam was impatient to get back to her work, 
to her life. And so to an extent she still feels that she fobbed Alison off a bit more than she should have. And Alison was quite clingy and needy. And Miriam's one of those rather brusque women who's not particularly responsive to needy. But she feels guilty about that. She has enough self-awareness to know that she probably wasn't as good a mother to Alison as she was to Fiona. But she's starting to feel a lot better about that too because Alison has literally met the suitor from Central Casting. He is everything a mother-in-law could wish for. He is tall. He is good-looking. He is charming. He's really, really nice to his mother-in-law. He has JFK Jr. hair which I sincerely believe was the single best head of hair on any man I've ever seen. And so he's, you know, and more than that, he's a vet. So he's just tick, 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 and he's head over heels in love with Ali, and she's head over heels in love with him. So they're getting married. It's a whirlwind romance. They've not known each other that long. Miriam can't remember when she sort of has seen them apart since they first met. But anyway, it's all going wonderfully well. She's a little bit pissed off because Alison, unlike Fiona and unlike Miriam herself, has decided to change her last name. But, you know, she can sort of get over that if she has to. And secretly, she's quite pleased because she thinks, good, now Ali is Nick's responsibility. He will have to deal with her quirks and needy bits. Not me. Me and Pete, her husband, we can get on with the rest of our lives, including all that travel and things we've been so looking forward to. Sorry about that, I wrote it in COVID. (laughs) I think some of my own logging snuck onto the pages. Um, But of course, I don't know about you, but whenever I've felt a little bit smug about my life, that's just when life hits me in the back of the head. And that's exactly what happens to Miriam, in the most devastating way possible, really. One morning, her beloved husband goes off to work as normal. She gets a phone call to find out that he's had a massive aneurysm and literally dropped dead. So he has been pulled out of her life in the most brutal way possible. No warning, nothing. No chance to say goodbye, no chance to get used to the idea, nothing like that. And Miriam is absolutely blindsided, bereft, grief-stricken, all of that. But she's also furiously angry. And she knows it's completely irrational that she should be angry, as her close friend and colleague Prisha says to her, I'm sure Pete would much rather still be alive. But she can't help it. She thinks, he just left me. He's just gone. He just disappeared, evaporated. And the fact that he didn't do it of his own volition makes no difference to the actual reality of she is on her own. She is on her own for the first time in decades. She doesn't know how to cope. Her daughters rally round for a while, but they go back to their own lives. And she tries to stay in touch, particularly with Ali, who by this time has moved to a small country town a couple of hours' drive from Sydney, Dungog. Her husband's a vet. He works with cows and horses and sheep and goats and there aren't many of those in Greenwich. So he's gone off to work in a practice in the country and she, his wife, has gone with him. Fair enough. But she's left her career behind. She's left 
her family behind and Miriam tries very hard to stay in touch, particularly when Ella gets pregnant quite quickly, much quicker than Miriam expected and has a little boy. And Miriam really wants to get to know this new grandchild, but somehow there's always a reason why she can't come. There's always a reason that Ali isn't able to pick up the phone or can't talk to her for very long. She feels that she's being held at arm's length all the time. And she's resentful because she's a bereaved widow. You know, she needs her family. And so it goes on. She goes to, does manage to spend a weekend with Ali, and everything seems okay. But Nick starts to drop hints about Ali's mental health. Has she ever had mental health issues? I've sent her to a psychiatrist. I'm worried about her. The mental health nurse starts to call regularly on Ali. Miriam's bewildered, but she has always been needy, so maybe Nick's right. Maybe she is suffering from postnatal depression after the birth of Teddy. Maybe Ali is unstable. Then Ali gets pregnant again really quickly, and Miriam is... Well, you know, it's great to have grandchildren, but I didn't expect it to happen quite that soon. And then she has the little girl. And again, the only contact Miriam seems able to have is over Facebook or on an iPad. She can't actually get anywhere near this new granddaughter, let alone get to know her grandson. And she is utterly at a loss. And she blames herself. I'm a bad mother. Pete, when he was here, he knew how to deal with Alison. He knew how to keep this relationship going. They always had more in common. He's much more grounded and sensible than me. I have this ability to unerringly say the wrong thing and, you know, make Ali go back into her shell. Until one morning, out of the blue, Ali and the two children turn up at Miriam's house fleeing, seeking refuge, terrified of Nick. And to Miriam's utter astonishment, she is finally told the truth about her daughter's supposedly picture-perfect marriage. The truth about this relationship throws Miriam into a world and into a life she never, ever, ever expected to have any direct experience of. And it only gets worse and worse and worse until Miriam finds herself in a position where she has to make a decision that she knows will change all of their lives forever. And I'm not going to tell you any (laughs) more. So it's a book about coercive control. In particular, also leading to some physical violence. But it's really a book about relationships, about family relationships, about relationships between men and women, husbands and wives, but also between parents and children, and particularly, I think, mothers and daughters. And it's about how those relationships, never perfect, always murky, multi-layered, complex, difficult to negotiate... You know, there's always undercurrents and things that aren't said and misunderstandings and misapprehensions about the same incident plays out very difficult, differently to one member of the family than it does to another. And these can be unknown and, and misunderstood and cause coldness or distance for reasons people don't necessarily understand and aren't clear on. 
But it's also, and those are the normal, natural, everyday difficulties of human relationships, but it's also about what happens when a relationship goes horribly, horribly, horribly wrong and becomes incredibly toxic and dangerous. What happens when what we call love actually turns out to be obsession, turns out to be a form of possession, of needing to own the person that is the love object. Um, I was very interested um, this morning. I didn't watch the Oscars last night, but I saw that, uh, you know, it was all over the internet, the uh, contretemps between Will Smith and Chris Rock about a joke, poor taste joke, that Chris Rock made about Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. And everyone's going, is Will right or is Chris right? Is Chris right or is Will right? You know, Chris's joke was in poor taste, did he deserve to be hit? And people have very different opinions. But no one to me is asking the obvious question. What did Jada think? Why did Will Smith think that he was somehow entitled to race up on stage and commit an act of violence to defend his wife, who is a perfectly capable, articulate, powerful, intelligent woman, from a perceived insult? If she was insulted, why wouldn't she take action or say something? Oh, no, the man to the rescue. If I was Jada Pinkett Smith, I'd be thinking seriously about what on earth he was thinking. She is not his wife. What did he say to Chris Rott? Get your, don't you have my wife's name in your bleep mouth? Sorry, she's not your wife. She's herself. And if she was upset by it, trust her to defend herself. I see the whole thing as toxic masculinity, both the men involved. Toxic masculinity. Possession, rampant egotism on the part of both of them and somehow equating violence with virtue. And also with putting down someone who has a health issue as humorous. There is no morality in either Chris Rock or Will Smith. The only person who comes out of this well is Jada Pinkett Smith. But she wasn't given a chance to stand up for herself. And the problem with this idea of protecting, being protective which we call chivalry, is protecting something, is very, very close to controlling something. And if the object that you wish to protect, object, person, whatever, decides they don't want your protection anymore, you can see how easily that might slip into a refusal to accept that that person can do without your protection. After all, when we say that we need to protect women, who are we protecting them from, precisely? Other men, aren't we? There was a shot on um, the internet this morning on Twitter. It really upset me, actually. It was a... Someone has collected all the names of the women killed by uh, men since 2008 and put them on a long white sheet of paper, which reaches 30 metres. 30 metres. They have unfurled it in front of Parliament House. 
Can you imagine if that was a scroll of men's names killed by women? What do you think we would be doing right now? But because it's women's names killed by men, what are we doing? Oh, gee, it's terrible, isn't it? Shocking. Somebody ought to do something. Those women, they should behave better. So one of the reasons I wrote this book, and yes, it was inspired by those headlines we get. We've just had another one in the last few days in Newcastle, um, the 21-year-old young woman who has been killed in front of her three-year-old child who was covered in her blood um, by her partner. Uh, It happens all the time. And yes, this book was inspired by those headlines. It was inspired by a photograph I saw of a, a, a woman who, um, who'd been killed with her children by her um, husband who'd then killed himself. And it was a picture of her, her and her smiling kids, heartbreaking, with an older woman. Not her mother, maybe her grandmother. The older woman's face was pixelated out. And I'm a mother and a grandmother, so I looked at this poor woman and I thought to myself, how must she be feeling now? How must she be feeling? And how must she have felt for a long time if if she knew that her um, granddaughter and her great-grandchildren were in real danger? Um, how, How would she be feeling? And then I thought, how would I feel if it was me and my daughter and my grandchildren? How would I feel? What would I do? And then I thought, well, I know what I'd want to do. And that's really where the idea for the book started from. And I find that I'm always writing about the same thing. I never find out that I'm writing about the same thing until long after I've finished the book that I've written. And the thing that I'm always writing about is women taking the power back. And in essence, that is what this book is about. And in essence, and I'll finish with this and then you can ask me lots of questions and you must ask me questions because that's my favourite bit. That's when I learn things. Um, That's one of the reasons that I think that so many women, not just me, but so many women are stepping up to put their hand up for this particular election. Uh, Most of them as independents uh, or for micro-parties. And I think it's because women are feeling now as if it's time. We have to take back the power, we have to hold on to our own power and we have to step into the places where power is exercised because we haven't throughout basically all of history bar a few exceptional uh, women and basically we've been shat all over, hence 30 metres of names of women killed by men. No one has done anything about that. And there are things we could do. We could have women-only police stations. We could have treatment for women suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after decades sometimes of living with someone who terrified them, literally treated them as a prisoner and an object who could be beaten at will. We could... Make sure that we make it easy for women to leave abusive relationships. We tell them to leave, but we give them nowhere safe to go and we don't give them any economic or financial resources to go with. And then if they haven't got a home because they haven't got any money because they've left an abusive relationship, we take their kids off them. And then we wonder and give them back to the abusive husband and then we wonder why they don't leave. We could fix that. 
We are talking about criminalising coercive control. That's a really good step. We should be doing that. But we need to do so much more, including look very, very hard at the way we bring up little boys and little girls. Just go into a children's clothing store one day and have a look at all the T-shirts and tops for girls and all the T-shirts and tops for boys. You will see that on the T-shirts and tops for girls, if they have any, um, you know, animals and things, they'll all be things like bunny rabbits, kittens and the occasional unicorn, maybe a butterfly or two. Pray, ladies and gentlemen, pray. And on the boys' T-shirts, sharks, wolves foxes, gorillas, lions, predators, predators. Something's wrong, badly wrong. It's been wrong for a long time. It's caused enormous pain and generational, I think, damage and suffering. It's good we're turning our face toward it instead of away from it. I hope this book adds a little bit to our process of staring the darkest side of what we call love in the face. Always remember M. Scott Peck, who wrote The Road Less Travelled, which, like everybody else, I read in the 80s. Um, and I don't remember any of it, except for one thing where he said that love is not a feeling. It's an action. In other words, who cares if you feel love? That doesn't do anybody any good except you. How do you act? Do you act loving? Because if you don't act loving, your feeling is self-indulgent. And I think a lot of these, and Will Smith, self-indulgent, in my view. I'll stop there. You can ask me questions. Please do. Challenge. Yes, sir. Hi, there's Sorry, a there's a. Can I just mic. pass you the mic? Oh, good. Don't have to drop a verse, do I? Thanks. Uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming to North Sydney. Um, I'm James. I'm from the North Sydney Sun. We're an independent local newspaper. I just live in our time and it's like I could practically walk here. It wasn't no. an effort. <laughs> it's no, good working joking. on distributing a little further north, but um, <clears throat> slowly, slowly over time. Um, just had a question on the setting of the book. Needless to say, it's uh, set on Sydney's North Shore. Very curious as to why choose our area. Um, you know, you say you live in Artaman. Do you have a historical connection to the area? And um, what about this area made it good for um, setting this novel in? Uh, well, first of all, I do agree with writing what you know. And so I know this area very well. So I felt comfortable describing it and, and writing about it. Um, and as a resident, I can poke gentle fun at uh, some of the foibles of the North Shore. Uh, and get away with it because I live here too and I'm just as guilty of them as anyone else. Also, though, there was a deeper reason and that was I think we still have a tendency to think of domestic violence, coercive control and abuse as something that happens in marginalised communities where people are very poor or, you know, already living very chaotic lives. It has to do with criminals, it has to do with drug addiction, it has to do with poverty. There's actually no truth in that. It can happen anywhere. And it struck me that it was important to write about it happening in a really nice middle-class area. And it's happening in a family which has resources. And even with those resources, whilst they're better off than a lot of women who, you know, don't have anything, Alison can run away to her mother's lovely house in Greenwich and her mother's got a successful business and they can afford to put in state-of-the-art, you know... Um, security cameras and things like that. Most people can't do that. But I wanted to point out, even with all of that, 
If you've got an obsessed predator, nothing can hold them back and how difficult it is to deal with. So there was a lot of reasons why I felt this was the right place to set it. It is also set in a country town, Dungog, which is another place I know really well. So I have, you know, I've written about the areas, the places that I am familiar with. I think as a novelist too, that gives you, um, you know, you're able to create a sense of place quite well when you write about the places you know. But it's a good question. Thank you for asking it. Back and then there and then there. Come up here and then. Um, thanks. Some amazing issues you brought up there, and they're all complex and they're all interweaved. And I was quite shocked or surprised when I read that Will Smith put forward his, his excuse was he had watched his father uh, abuse his mother through his whole childhood and beat her up savagely, and he hadn't helped. And he said he could no longer sit and not help again. So there are so many messages becoming distorted and mixed, and whether they're being used as an opportunistic reason to get up and hit somebody I don't know but what it does say is you have to start right at the beginning in the schools with the education with the fact that boys are not our protectors and they shouldn't can't go through life saying I did wrong by not protecting my mother now I must go and smack up that um, very rude and uh, insensitive comedian but where do you actually start with getting those messages through in, say, early childhood education? I actually think it starts with... In a way, we can't keep asking teachers to do parents' job for them. Um, parents have to do it. So fathers have to be really good role models about respecting... There's a wonderful, wonderful saying that I've always really liked and it's one of the ones by Anonymous. And, of course, Virginia Woolf said that Anonymous was a woman which I think is uh, probably pretty true. Uh, and it is the, mo the most important thing a man can do for his children is love their mother. And I think that that is such a profound little piece of wisdom that you can't be a good father if you abuse and hate the mother of your children. That is not good parenting. You might not like her very much, that's okay, and divorce is one thing, but respect her, support her, um, and co-parent with her, fine. I think as soon as we start to assume that women are weak little creatures who need a big strong man to look after them, and that's obviously the message Will Smith got because Will Smith, when his mother was being mistreated by his father, was an adult. Will Smith's mother actually had a responsibility to protect her children her children do not have a responsibility to protect her. And the trouble, I think, in abusive relationships is that children often take on that protective role, which is not theirs. It's us about. And so when women, and I'm not blaming women here, but when women get demoralised enough, and coercive control works as an insidious way of undermining someone's self of the, sense of themselves and also their sense of reality... So it literally makes them feel at a complete loss in the world. So it's understandable why they would then lose their capacity to protect the ch their children in the way that, you know, is, is normal and natural for parents to protect children rather than the other way around. And unfortunately, it looks like Will Smith may also have learnt that the way to protect someone was to use violence 
And that's never the way to do it. In fact, the way would be, have been to say to his wife, I am upset by that. Are you? Are you going... You know, I think you should say something to Chris Rock. That would have been the way to deal with it. Admit your own feelings. That joke upsets me because I know how painful this experience has been for you. But I'm not going to jump in and rescue you. Do you want to do something or not? You've got my support if you do. Do you see what the difference? Giving her the agency rather than taking it away. And what Will Smith saw is his father taking all his mother's agency and he's just taken his wife's agency. Not realising that it's the same thing. And that's... We have to... It comes down to one thing. Do you think that women are fully human and equal and strong and powerful as men? If you don't, don't have children, (laughs) frankly, because you are going to bring them up with a view of women as slightly inferior. And that way, nothing good lies. Nothing good lies. Well, there are signs of hope, real signs of hope. First of all, we're acknowledging it, we're staring it in the face, we're writing about it. Women are getting very angry and they're uh, not being as meek and submissive about it as they once were. Um, Young women, extraordinary. Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins, um, Chanel Contos. I mean, young women are just unbelievable. So confident, so sure of themselves, so refusing to placate and defer, even to the Prime Minister. I admire that enormously. I think it's fantastic. I don't give a toss about whether she was polite. Um, Politeness can often be the way we placate and stay nice, because otherwise, what will they do to us? And she had already been threatened by the Prime Minister's office that they would not support her charity if she wasn't nice to him. That's a form of control. So, yeah, I think we are seeing it happen. But there won't be a magic wand. We won't be able to run a nice don't-be-nasty-to-your-wife course and solve the problem. It won't happen like that. It's, and it's to do with women gaining respect for themselves men gaining respect for women and us starting to live properly as equals, which we haven't quite done yet. But we're on our way. It's better than it was, a lot better than it was. There's another question there. Oh, yes. Um, thank you for shining a light on that, this issue, coercive control. I think this book really covers it. Um, how do you, now that, of course, you have a heightened awareness of it, um, how do you feel when you're moving around society? Do you actually... Are you able to pick them? Are you <laughs> no. And I think that's the thing we all have to recognise, that a lot of the coercive controllers are incredibly clever. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some research that came out only a few weeks ago which said that 33%, that what they did was they analysed all the perpetrators, of who'd, men who'd killed women over the last... It could have been 10 years, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was a while... And they divided them up into um, sort of categories. They put them into... And fully 33% of those men who'd killed their wives were uh, middle-class, high-functioning, well-liked, often professional, well-presented, never been in trouble with the police before. Everybody said, what a good bloke, couldn't believe that he behaved like this. 33%. That makes it not rare. 
And so, no, I don't think you can pick them at all. And I think any of us who've ever had a friend who suddenly we find out or someone in our family we find out has been been abused, we're often extremely surprised and shocked and had no idea. Because not only does the perpetrator work very hard to keep this behind closed doors, but the victim does too. Not because they're useless, hopeless, they're terrified. If he, if, if that he gets revealed, they get punished. So they, they're running on eggshells all the time, trying to keep things smooth and okay. And they've often been convinced that whenever he does go off and behave appallingly, they caused it. It's their fault. And so they're, they're the exaggerated placators, smoothing feathers all the time. Imagine living like that. But I, don't, I think it's very hard to pick them. The one thing I would say, particularly to young women, of whom there are so many here today, are uh, that... I'm joking, yeah. That... <laughs> but you will know some. Um, that if a man comes along and he seems too good to be true and he sweeps you off your feet and he buys you roses daily and he takes you to fancy restaurants and buys you champagne, sit down and watch the Tinder swindler from beginning to end because he is nicked to the life and run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. There are no princes, there are no white knights. No one's coming to rescue you and nor should you need to be rescued. You've got to rescue yourself if you find yourself in a difficult situation and When people say, he swept me off my feet, alarm bells ring. There is no more vulnerable position than not having your feet on the ground. Beware the charmer. Thank you for today. Um, I was just wondering when you were saying that um, I agree with you that women need to start setting the rules and enforcing the rules. I was just wondering... um, if you did think there was a role for men, though, in supporting women in this and how they can do that. Um, You've said sort of with how uh, Will Smith could have behaved differently. But when it gets to the real power issues in Parliament and um, and even in the day-to-day, what can men do? Good men. Well, they can behave decently. I mean, it's not hard. To behave decently is perfectly easy. Most of us do it most of the time. Now, we all fall from grace occasionally. We all lose our temper. We all say things we shouldn't say. We all get frustrated or we're very tired or something's gone horribly wrong and we snap at a shop assistant when we really shouldn't. That's human. We've all done it. But decent people realise they've done the wrong thing and they apologise if they can and they try to remember not to behave like that again. And they don't don't go around doing it routinely as a way of letting off steam. Decent people, men and women, recognise that where where they stop and someone else begins. They recognise when they are uh, projecting their anger or their humiliation or their tiredness or whatever it might be onto someone else and punishing them for it and that that's not the appropriate thing to do. Bullies whether they're in Parliament, online or in the schoolyard, are all trying to do one thing. They're trying to control your emotional response and they're trying to create in you a negative emotional response. So they are getting power out of making other people feel bad. This is because they feel bad, of course. You're not a bully if you're a happy person. 
Um, and so what they will do, like for example, if you get a horrible tweet, it says I'm going to kill you or something like that, or worse. Um, they want you to feel afraid, they want you to feel hurt, they want you to feel angry, all sorts of feelings they want you to feel. And you may well feel those because you're a human being and that's how we feel when we're threatened directly. But the way to completely diffuse the bully is to refuse to react that way, to refuse to let them see that you feel afraid or hurt or angry. Instead, just roll over the top of it. Um, look, I've only managed to do that a couple of times and I'm so proud of them that I tell everyone about them, but... One of, the, one of the times that that happened to me was um, a man came to me and he was either was or he was pretending to be, how the hell do you know, an American Marine. And he said, I know 71 ways to kill you with my bare hands. I'm assuming his accent because it was on Twitter, but um, <laughs> he said it was an American Marine, so... I thought he'd sound like that. And uh, I went back to him and said, well, that's very impressive, but surely one would suffice. <laughs> In other words, I went, I don't believe you, you're not going to get an Emmy, and this was years ago and I'm still here. So I was right. But what I'm saying is just you don't have to, uh, that was my once in a blue moon come up with the perfect response in the moment instead of at three o'clock in the morning when I usually do. But... Um, you don't have to come up with the perfect response. You just don't react the way they want you to. And so I think one of the ways that men can support women is in just being decent human beings and recognising women as full and equal human beings who you treat just like you would any other human being. It's as soon as we want to start slicing and dicing and separating people out. So that exaggerated courtesy that some men do towards women. I find that a bit oppressive because it's immediately identifying me as not like him. And actually, I'm much more like him than I'm different from him. I think we share something like 98.9% .9 of our DNA with chimpanzees. I mean, how different can men and women really be? Um, and yes, there are differences between us, but there are as many differences between women as there are between women and men, and between men as there are between men and women. So all this exaggerating of the difference, vive la différence, causes a lot of harm. It's like how we've di differentiated between races for so long. White people are like this and black people are like that. Well, we know that's nonsense. Or straight people and gay people, we know that that's nonsense. Or Catholics and Protestants, or Muslims and Christians, it's all nonsense, 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 nonsense and it's nonsense between men and women too we're all just people we all have the same emotions someone can read this book from a different cultural background you know there are people wanting to translate it in other languages I've been told and they will get the same feelings from it um, Shakespeare is performed in Japanese and Mandarin and Arabic and people respond. So we're not different, not fundamentally. And I think as soon as you start treating all human beings as just other human beings, you can't go far wrong. 
It's when you try to treat them as somehow different from you. Even if you tell yourself that's courteous, even if you say, oh, I think women are so much superior to men. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, and anyway, they're not. And trying to pretend they are just makes it even harder because that's when you get the stuff like, you know, um, the Kimberly Kitching thing, which is, you know, I'm sure that, that politics is brutal and people say nasty things. But to call the women who may have been unpleasant mean girls is just sexist nonsense. Yes, women can be unpleasant. Men can too. Women can be mean. Men can too. Human beings can behave badly. You don't have to define them or say that it's somehow worse if women treat other women badly than it is if men treat women badly. It's not worse. And why do we let men off the hook so easy? It's just as bad. Treat other people like another human being. Like you would... Golden rule. Do as you would be done by. To everyone. It'll work out pretty good. It's not very hard. But for some reason we're frightened of doing it. I hope that answers your question. It's a long-winded way round it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sorry. It was more about the fact that men sort of hold the power at the moment, especially, say, in Parliament, where they've got a majority, um, and rules do need to be changed. It was sort of more like what is something that men who have to let go of power, like what can they do and what, what should men be doing? Or if there is a situation where a woman is being threatened... Um, should they be supporting her or Well, of course. Back? You should be you know, supporting I mean, anyone who's threatened. Right. Anyone who's being threatened should get support from those um, who watch and see someone under threat. That's just, you know, basic decent behaviour. I think um, with the power thing, that's really interesting. I was doing a... I do a... Um, every Wednesday I'm doing one tomorrow with um, Richard Dennis and Nikki Hutley about the budget. So um, as part of the election campaign, I call it Reasonings with Jane, where I don't pontificate, I talk to experts in a field about what they think about something. And I interviewed Greg Mullins a couple of weeks ago and one of the questions uh, from the audience was, what, to him, why don't you stand for politics? You know who Greg Mullins is, the ex-fire commissioner who warned um, Scott Morrison before the fires in 2019 and was totally ignored and is now fighting very hard about climate change and emergency responses and, you know, is back in the headlines with what's been happening in the Northern Rivers. And uh, somebody said, why don't you stand for politics? I think you'd be great. And I was agreeing with them, thinking, yeah, Greg would be fantastic. And he said, no, there's too much testosterone there already. He said, I don't want more men in politics. I want more women in politics. That's what we need. Now that is how a man supports women and changes the balance of power. Um, but we have to be understanding that no one gives up power without a fight. So when people say to me, oh, you know, don't you think feminism needs a rebrand? You know, it's not very nice. And people think it's not very nice. I go, it's not a brand. It's a revolutionary movement that is designed to redistribute power more equitably. Of course the people with power aren't going to like it. We want to take some off them and give it to somebody else. It's perfectly reasonable and understandable that they wouldn't like it. But that doesn't mean feminism is wrong and shouldn't be challenging the powerful. That's the only way things ever change. So it's tough when you've been 
we have to recognise that white, straight, mostly private school educated men have just an assumption that, I mean, Louis C.K., I know he's been disgraced, but he said it beautifully once. He said, I don't understand the concept of the time machine. Unless you're a white, straight um, man, why would you want to go back in time anywhere past about 1960? And I thought, very good point, very good point. He said, but it doesn't matter what, what um, period in history that my time machine arrives in, they'll say to me, oh, Mr CK, do follow me. We have a table for you right by the window. And that is... So there's an assumption that goes with that, which is often unconscious, that you'll get an easy... Uh, that you're entitled. It's called entitlement. Some people have a lot of entitlement. Um, I'm a white, privileged, middle-class woman. I probably have a whole lot of entitlement too that I'm not as conscious of as I should be. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm not blaming men for that. It's perfectly natural, reasonable and human that that's how it should be. But once you see it, one of the things you have to do, even if it's hard and makes you feel uncomfortable, is what Greg Mullins did in that and say, no, there's enough of people like me with power. We need people who aren't like me with power. Does that answer the question better? Thank you. Do we have time for any more? Hi, Jane. It's really just a follow-on question from that, which is really about quotas. And what do you think about quotas and the role they might play in helping helping shift things forward in, you know, the next millennia? I'm totally in favour of quotas. In fact, I'm radically in favour of quotas, and I'll give you my reason why. The first is that there are um, so many quotas in society already. This will shock you, but Barnaby Joyce is the Deputy Prime Minister not because of merit. <laughs> I know. I was surprised too. Uh, Barnaby Joyce is the Deputy Prime Minister because he is the leader of the National Party and the national leader of the National Party is always the Deputy Prime Minister in a Liberal National Coalition uh, government, in federal government. Uh, that's why that man called Mike McCormack that no one remembers was our Deputy Prime Minister for some time when Barnaby was out of favour. So that's a quota. That is a quota. If you've ever sat on a board of any kind, you will look around the table and see a whole lot of people who are there because of quotas. Often it's interstate directors. Or we've got to have someone from Victoria, we've got to have someone from WA. Uh, or staff representative quota. Uh, another quota is in the Cabinet itself. We have to have X number of people in the Cabinet from this state, that state and the next state. We also have to have people from this faction, that faction and the other faction. Quotas, quotas, quotas and quotas. Apparently everyone's allowed to have a quota except women. We're not allowed to have them, but everybody else can. And if you say to me, oh, but men haven't had a quota. Oh, my dear, you do not. You've not read your history. Everyone has forgotten the pesky 100% quota that operated in favour of men, admittedly of a certain class, but nevertheless, 100% quota that operated in absolutely every institution, all education, all political power, all financial power, all uh, religious power, all every, military power, you name it. Men, men, only men. Women were expressly forbidden. 
They couldn't have their own money. They had no right to their own earnings. They had no right to their own children. They weren't allowed to go to a university. They were 100%. Lasted for a minimum of 2,000 years. And every step forward by feminism has been chipping away at that 100% quota, beginning with getting the vote and the right to their own children and the right to hang on to their own earnings, which didn't happen until 1858 in England, the Married Women's Property Act. So it's not that long ago. They couldn't leave a domestic violence relationship. If they did, they couldn't have access to their children. The injustice is quite extraordinary. These are our great-grandmothers. So... And if we think that that 100% quota which operated for 2,000 years didn't give blokes a leg up, we are kidding ourselves. But everyone's forgotten it because it's a bit, you know, it's just normal. And so we didn't sort of think of it as a quota, but that's what it was. So, you know, what are women asking for? 50% at the most. Me? My argument is, if we're really going even Stevens, we'd go 100% for the next 2,000 years and then we'll talk. <laughs> be interesting to see how it turned out. It does seem like a good point to end. <laughs> Hopefully so we'll talk again. careful who you elect. <laughs> um, there's copies of the book for sale at the back and Jane will be signing. Thank you very much for joining us. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.